Thank you, everybody, for joining us tonight. My name is Steve Jagger. I graduated from Vancouver College in 1996, and I'm currently the co-president of the Alumni Association with Mark Reed. Um, the VC Alumni Association is a member-driven organization aimed at bringing all alumni together. We run annual uh, events, the golf tournament, the Irish Christmas lunch, the fishing derby, there's a hockey game, basketball, and quite a few more. But the COVID-19 situation changed everything. We've either canceled or postponed every activity that we do. And so we decided to set up a webinar series to engage with alumni around the world. This is our third um, webinar, which is great. The idea is to, we're charging you guys all know, charging a small $10 fee. What we're doing is we're taking all that money that comes in. We're buying, using 100% of that money to buy gift certificates from Vancouver College alumni-owned restaurants. And then we're, as the Alumni Association, we're holding on to those gift, uh, gift certificates and we'll use them next year as prizes at the you know, golf tournament or whatever for next year. But the idea was to get some cash in the hands of the, um, the alumni restaurants. Tonight is supporting Little Bird, which is a dim sum place. And actually the Irish Heather, who turns out is not a Vancouver College alumni, and that was my mistake. Um, but I told him, well, we're going ahead with it anyway, so we're, he's, he's on. Ironically, the Sean's a good fella, so that's yeah. a good move anyway. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if somebody told me he was uh, uh, alumni, but anyways, after I told him what was going on and he got all excited about it, he was, he's like, thank you. Um, turns out he's not, not an alumni, so instead of taking it away from him, I figured we'd just, let's keep moving and include him in it. So yeah, Little Bird and the Irish, uh, Irish Heather. So before uh, I introduce our guests, let me give you a couple items. Um, the Zoom room has everybody muted. You can't unmute yourself for good reason. Uh, throw your questions into the chat and we will get to them um, as part of it at the end. So just ask your questions in there. And uh, let me do quick intros here. So we've got uh, Martin Ertl is a grad of 88. He's an entrepreneur. He started a company called Contractually to move business contracts to the cloud, and he sold that company to Coupa Software. Uh, he happens to be a lawyer by background, and he's starting a new company to automate business contracts with machine learning. Martin is going to be doing um, facilitating our interview here with Mike Parker. So Mike is a grad of 89. He's the global president of iCrossing, which helps some of the world's leading brands to drive transformation and growth in an era of empowered consumers. Under his leadership, iCrossing has continued to thrive as one of the world's leading digital agencies. Mike joined iCrossing in 2015 to oversee its West Coast and US territories before taking the helm of global operations in 2017, which was a banner year for the agency in which it, uh, it earned the top spot at Advertising Age Agency to Watch. Prior to iCrossing, he was the global chief digital officer at McCain World Group, also served as the co-president of Tribal DDB, U.S. Network. Mike's been recognized by Campaign Magazine as 40 under 40 leader of digital marketing and has won Agency of the Year honors and served as a member of the inaugural Cannes Lion Innovation Jury. So with that said, thank you both for doing this and I will pass this over to Martin. Thanks, Steve, and uh, welcome everyone. I'm excited to be here and have the chance to talk with you, Mike. Uh, it seems like there's uh, an awful lot of stuff going on in the world right now, so we're probably not going to run out of things, of things to talk yeah, about. A couple of things. <laughs> um, why don't we start at the beginning? Why Vancouver College? Why did you go to VC? Just going back to Steve's point, though, I was just thinking about it. Sean Heather, who owns the Irish Heather, did not go to VC, but his wife went to LFA, so close enough. 
Aaron was close. close, actually, now that I it's think close. about it. Um, why did I go to Vancouver College? Um, well, uh, a big reason was my father, who went also to Vancouver College, who, who may actually be on the, on the Zoom today joining us. But um, yeah, my dad graduated from VC, and I knew about the school and, um, you know, kind of was actually... I know, I know many people in our era kind of felt like their parents forced them to go, but I certainly didn't feel like that. I, I, um, I kind of chose to go. Yeah. So when, when did you start feeling, uh, once you're there, like, okay, this is the place for me. What, uh, what got you excited about being at BC? Um, <clears throat> I went, uh, I made the move in seventh grade in grade seven, um, and joined, um, so it was smaller, right? You know, the class sizes at that point are smaller. So I felt like I got connected to to the the community and connected to the school and the and the people very quickly. I think maybe when you go to a school in eighth grade um, and it's you know bigger group of people all making the transition, maybe it takes you a little longer to get connected. But I felt like I got connected very quickly. <clears throat> a couple of people that I knew kind of going in, um, and certainly. At the time, you know, fair bit, of, fair amount of the people in grade seven have been at college through through all of elementary school. So there was, I think, as much as I felt like I got connected quickly, there's certainly a little bit of a barrier breaking into to the existing group of people as well. But um, I think that tees you up well for high school. So I kind of hit the ground running in in high school, so to speak, and um, was able to get involved in in a lot of different aspects of the school, which I think was an important part of it for me as well. When, when you look back at the things you got involved in, what, what most stands out for you as your passion at the time? You know, I was, I was pretty active. Uh, I did student council. Um, I was grad committee chairman our year. Um, tried, tried a number of different sports. I was on the yearbook committee doing ad sales and stuff, which was, you know, good uh, teaser for the things to come. But um, I think the thing that stands out most for me was probably my rowing experience. Uh, we were talking about that earlier, but I was fortunate enough to, I guess I was, I was sort of at a moment of, you know, I wasn't a great football player. I wasn't a great basketball player. I wasn't somebody who got involved in one of those sports early. And so, you know, later on in your high school time, it's, it's hard to jump on those trains uh, if, if you haven't been on them from the beginning, because you're just not at that same level that everybody else is at. And, thinking about what to to do and how to get involved and Terry Shea had the idea to kind of do a little test drive of the idea of rowing um, and I just took to it really quickly and uh, was fortunate enough to be part of the very first rowing crew college we were the inaugural year for rowing it's a fantastic uh, experience and uh, I know as we talked about before that rowing has become a really important pillar of of what college excels at and, and has but at the time we were we actually had no boats and we were borrowing, you know, other schools boats and, you know, trying to make do. So it was kind of a crazy year, but it was, uh, it was great. You got in on the ground floor of, uh, of rowing. You're the startup, the original startup. That's how right. many years, uh, how many years did you, did you row then at VC? Um, so the, the program started when I was in grade 11 and really I only kind of got the one full year in. So I guess I would say I rode at VC for a year and a half. And uh, I actually got a little bit recruited. We had a really, uh, despite the, um, the limited amount of time, we had a really uh, successful year as our first year. And um, um, I got recruited. I got a little bit recruited by uh, University of Washington. 
but I ended up going to uh, UBC and rowing varsity crew uh, for a year at UBC as well. Fantastic. Let's uh, let, let's come back to that. Um, is there a, is there a memory or some memories that stand out for you from high school? Um, your funniest uh, your funniest recollection. A lot of my memories I don't think are fit for uh, yeah. repeating uh, here amongst this group of people. But uh, yeah, no, I had being I had to, yeah, exactly. I don't want it to uh, interfere with my political aspirations. Uh, I, I had uh, I had great experiences um, both at the school and just with friends. You know, I think one of the great things for me about VC was just hanging out with a group of people that were from all over the Lower Mainland and, uh, you know, having a passion for skiing. And uh, my family had a cabin at Whistler at the time and, you know, being able to go up there with some of the guys and ski and shenanigans and stuff, uh, you know, lots of, lots of good memories. When... Uh when you then went on to uh, to UBC, how did you make that decision um, coming out of high school about where to go, especially having other uh, other options and looking at what you wanted to do with uh, with rowing? Yeah, I think that um, if if I'm honest, I probably didn't go through an extensive process of really thinking about where to go to university or college. Um, compared to maybe what other people did or certainly what I think uh, young people do today. My daughter is just turned 17. She's just completed uh, grade 11. So she's going into grade 12 next year and she's starting to obviously think about college here in the US. And it's such a process of applying and thinking about what the right fit is for you. And, and, and maybe some people on the call went through more of that themselves. But <clears throat> UBC was just kind of always the almost default option for me, if I'm honest. And I had aspirations to go and do business, do commerce, and 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 certainly that was a strength. Um, you know, my dad went to UBC and other family members there and friends were going there. And you know, they had a they had a solid rowing program. I, I looked at University of Washington, but the idea of sort of moving away and, and really um, going to going to college in the States and getting into crew full full bore was just not something that in the end uh you know decided I wanted to do. So it was kind of a always the kind of obvious, you know, kind of de facto choice for me, really. And at this point, how, how much are you thinking about what you want to do after university? Because uh, I know from, from talking to, to uh, students in high school, even in university, um, that's something that they think um, a lot about, but uh, would love to hear um, to what extent or and, and how you were thinking about that coming out of high school and going through university. It's a great question. I think for me, um, I knew what I liked in terms of academically um, and, and, and generally from a career pursuit perspective, I knew that I was interested in business. I knew something about marketing and advertising uh, arena. Um, and uh, I, I guess um, I thought less about kind of what job am I trying to apply for and therefore what college or university do I need to get that job? I, I thought more about what do I want to study? What do I want to focus on? What is going to open up the kinds of doors for me that, that I was interested, I thought, in, in having opened. Um, so I sort of focused a little bit more on the, you know, step-by-step -step versus kind of projecting uh, a long way ahead. I, I know that, um, again, thinking about my daughter's experience and, and students today, Martin, I think that as you refer 
there's a lot of pressure. There just seems to be a ton of pressure to really have it all figured out, to have it all figured out very young, um, where you want to go to school, what you want to study, what kind of job you want to have, where you want to live, because they force you to make these decisions in terms of application for school or, or thinking about what kind of majors you want to do and stuff. Um, so young, but I, I think that, um, you know, my advice to my daughter and my advice to any, any student today would be the same, which is, you know, don't try to try to push back on that pressure a little bit and try to feel less like you have to have it all figured out when you're 17 years old. And I think, think more about the kind of place you want to be, the kind of, um, you know, interactions you want to have, the, the types of things you want to study that you're going to be passionate about and, and have some confidence and some faith that those doors will open for you as the, as the journey goes, maybe. I think, yeah, I think that's really valuable advice and, uh, Thanks for, for sharing that. Um, so let's fast forward a little bit. Um, you're, you've gone through university. You did uh, you studied commerce at UBC. Um, what happens next? Yeah, I um, as I was sort of moving through my commerce um, studies uh, before graduating, the summer before I graduated, I was looking for a job, and um, I found an opportunity um, to do a, like a summer internship in the airline industry at Cathay Pacific Airways. And uh, at that time, you know, obviously the population and the interaction between Hong Kong and Vancouver was, was exploding and, and Cathay was a, on the forefront of, you know, travel between Canada and, and Asia. So I thought it was a exciting kind of inter internship and in, in type of business to get involved with. So I did a summer internship at Cathay and uh, I really enjoyed it. And then during my, my final year at, uh, at UBC, I continued to work sort of part-time and stayed connected to Cathay. And then they offered me a, a full-time job after I graduated. So I started in the airline business and, and working for Cathay and um, really enjoyed that. Uh, it was a time that Cathay opened up the Vancouver to New York connection as well. So I got to go to New York on business, which was pretty cool. And um, and, uh, you know, fast forward, I sort of realized, though, that the challenge in an airline is, you know, everything happens at the central hub. And when you're in what's called an outport, you know, someplace that the airline flies to and there's a small marketing office or, or you know, sales administration office, you're kind of in the you're kind of on the backwater, like you're kind of disconnected from the decisions and what's happening. And I realized that if I wanted to kind of maximize my experience with Cathay, that I needed to get connected to to HQ. So. I, I sort of enacted this operation where anytime senior executives from, from Cathay would come out from Hong Kong and spend time in Vancouver, I would make sure that I was front and center having a beer or joining the dinner or, or bending, bending their ear to sort of say, hey, I'd, I'd be interested in an opportunity. And so eventually one uh, presented itself and I had an opportunity to move to Hong Kong for two years uh, and, and live there and, and work in the marketing department. And I was sort of in the frequent flyer program, customer loyalty early, what we would call CRM now, and um, you know, very, very early digital marketing. So I had an incredible experience living in Hong Kong for two years and traveling extensively on business for the airline and, and really focused on our, on our frequent flyer program partnerships and some of the joint marketing that we were doing. So that was just like a really formative and interesting experience for me. And I was in Hong Kong and 95, 96, which is obviously a, a cool time leading up to the handover time of, of change there. Um, traveled around Asia a lot, both for business and, and personal, and kind of got a flavor for, for that. But I was um, 
was doing long distance. I was in a relationship with my now wife and um, sort of got to a point where I was like, you know, hey, am I coming back or not? Or what are we doing? So uh, I eventually moved back and I spent a little bit more time in the airline business at Cathay, but I kind of realized that maybe um, it was time to get a, a different experience and, and try a different industry. Um, and I'd always been a little bit fascinated by the advertising industry world, you know, the advertising agency world and um, had some connections there. And so I thought, you know, what a great way to, to go work in the agency world for, for a period of time where I would get to work on a variety of different businesses and, and across a variety of different industries. And after sort of spending five years in total in the airline business and kind of getting to know it a bit, um, have a chance to kind of broaden my horizons. So I did that. I joined an agency in Vancouver called Palmer Jarvis, which was a somewhat world-renowned creative agency in Vancouver. And, um, you know, uh, an incredible journey of, of 10 years at Palmer Jarvis. We were acquired by um, Omnicom Global Holding Company, an uh, agency called DDB. We became Palmer Jarvis DDB and then DDB Canada. And uh, as I said, I spent uh, 10 years in that journey. And um, one of the highlights of that was it was, it was kind of the early days of digital marketing where some of the technology, teleco companies, different businesses like that were starting early days of building websites and investing in online advertising, certainly long before Google or social media. And, um, and because I had a little bit more of a connection and a passion to that, I eventually got asked by Frank Palmer, who was the head of the agency, to take on responsibility for our, for our digital agency offering. Um, that consolidated up with, with all of DDB's digital holdings to become tribal DDB, which was one of the first kind of global digital agency companies. Um, so I ran tribal Canada for, uh, five or six years and, uh, you know, again, early, early on the wave of kind of digital marketing. I was, I was pretty young at the time. I was probably, um, you know, 26, 27 when I sort of first got some of the leadership opportunity and, I think I did that for um, for maybe five years, led, led Tribal Canada and grew it nationally. And, uh, you know, we won, we won Digital Agency of the Year in Canada, got some, some notice and some recognition. And lo and behold, I got a, I got a call one day from a recruiter that said, uh, how, do you, how do you think about maybe moving to San Francisco? And uh, at the time, my wife, Megan, and I, and we had young kids and pretty set up, honestly, in Vancouver. Uh, access to Whistler, you know, a place on the, on the islands and the coast and lots of friends, community. And we hadn't really thought honestly about leaving Vancouver. And when the opportunity came in, it was with a, a very well-known, somewhat renowned agency here called Gidby Silverstein. And it just felt like a really unique opportunity, um, you know, to sort of trade on some of that experience and success growing the business in Canada, come to the big leagues a little bit, you know, work for, uh, for a globally known agency in a market like San Francisco, get more connected to Silicon Valley and, and all of the things that at the time were, were really starting to take off. And, and um, you know, to be honest, we, we really, um, you know, sort of struggled with that decision for a while. Like, you know, should we really leave? Is it, you know, is this an adventure that we have to take advantage of? And in, in the end, we decided it was that, you know, Vancouver would always be there. Our friends would be there, but we wanted to to see what kind of an adventure we could have and move down here. I think it, if if it had been New York, honestly, or if it had been other markets, I might have been less interested. But 
I've always loved kind of the West Coast cities. Um, California, San Francisco is a great city. And again, the, the proximity to everything happening in the Valley here uh, just seemed like a really interesting, in the same way kind of like being in Hong Kong during the you know sort of handover was an interesting moment. It was like, it is an interesting moment to be in a place like this. And, and I think, you know, as much as I, as I love Vancouver and, and I always look almost jealously on people who live in Vancouver and are able to enjoy the quality of life that we have there and are able to kind of find a career opportunity um, that, that provides a bigger platform or access to, you know, global opportunity. For me in the kind of marketing and advertising arena with a sort of limit to head offices and sort of marketing spend, I did kind of worry that I was kind of capping out a little bit in terms of what my career might potentially become if I stayed in a place like Vancouver. So, so I made the tough decision to come down here with my family and that was 13 years ago. Wow. Wow. What a history. Um, that's a great point about, um, you know, searching for opportunity, right? So the, the thread that uh, you've described so far, uh, you saw that opportunity in Hong Kong at uh, a pretty significant time in its history. Um, and now moving to the Bay Area at, at um, uh, a hugely expansive time in, uh, in what the Bay Area has done uh, with the web and with, uh, with technology. Um, now, did you have kids uh, at the time when, uh, when you moved down to the Bay Area? Yeah, they were, <clears throat> they were pretty small. They were one and three at the time that we moved down here. So it was kind of like, you know, if we don't go now, it's going to get harder to go as kids get plugged into sports and schools and community. We felt like we were mobile at the time. So my kids were born in Canada. Um, my, uh, my mom grew up in Seattle. My dad was obviously born and raised in Vancouver. And so I was born a dual citizen. I was lucky because uh, my mom had U.S. citizenship. So I was born dual. And um, because I was dual and kids were born in Canada, they have the Canadian citizenship. And then when we moved down, they got their U.S. passports as well. So my kids are dual. And uh, so it made it, it made it easier, you know, because of that. And, and, um, and the kids being at a young, young age. So they were, they were kind of movable. They're very much connected to Canada. You know, they, they know that, you know, in our hearts, we're Canadian, but uh, they don't remember it a lot. They were so small. Um, obviously, we had a July 1st and a July 4th. That's great. That's, that's right. And we get, we get two turkeys every year as well, <laughs> or three, some, so you, some years. <laughs> so you get to, to the Bay Area. Um, what did you find when you got there? How did it compare to what your expectations were coming in? life-wise and professionally and culture? Yeah, I mean, it really was a bit of a, it was a bit of a shock, you know, it was definitely a change. I, I think, you know, it's like obviously go home to Vancouver and spend time, at, you know, everything has changed. Everything continues to change. Vancouver has gotten bigger and more global and more competitive in many respects. But at the time, um, it just felt so much bigger, you know, it felt um, more intense. Um, you know, so many people in one area, so much competition for, for space on the highway, competition for, you know, access to a weekend getaway or a kid's program. Um, so it was, it was much more competitive. And I think that um, that sort of American spirit of, of kind of competitiveness and forging your own way, um, you know, I think it took adjustment. It really, it took us some time to, to adjust to the pace and adjust to that kind of in your face 
every day a little bit of, you know, every day is a little bit of a battle, you know, and, um, and things have been kind of felt very easy in Vancouver in comparison. Um, but I think also just the excitement of the, the scale of opportunity and this idea at the time, especially here, that people were forging new paths and, and really kind of inventing inventing search, inventing social media, inventing Facebook and Apple and, and just all of the things that were happening. There was just this really, this real interesting spirit. And, you know, the neighborhood that we moved in here is kind of halfway between the city and the valley. And so um, my neighbors um, are a combination of people that work in, in you know, technology, work in finance and other different things. So it's kind of a mixed bag, but, you know, just having a block party or something and, you know, people are at Facebook and Google and Apple and, and Yahoo and doing interesting stuff. Um, it it kind of creates an interesting energy. So, so I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed um, in my job being able to get connected to those kind of companies and, and be somebody who could be seen by clients as, as bringing insight and knowledge about what's happening at a time when a lot of businesses were still very new to, to digital, to the internet. And, and um, it really helped me kind of honestly accelerate my career being here at that time and kind of being able to bring that sort of learning and connection forward in my, in my business relationships. As a, as a Canadian in the Bay area, um, how, what, what's the impact of how others see you? Do you, do you feel that people see you differently or it's a non-issue? Um, a bit of both. I mean, I think I remember when I first moved down and um, it was early on <clears throat> and I was working a lot on our, we had won the Sprint telecom business and they're based in um, just outside of Kansas City in a place called Overland Park and was going out there a lot. And my mom called me one evening and uh, she was like, you know, what's it feel like to be in the States? What's it like to be in America? And I said, you know, at home in San Francisco, doesn't actually feel like, you know, you're in America all that different, but here in, in Kansas and in Overland Park, it, it really does. And, and so I think, you know, one of the reasons why the Bay Area was attractive to us is that it is so similar, you know, it feels culturally compatible and aligned. And, and I don't think it's, it's wildly different, you know, up and down the coast here in terms of how we think about, about things and how we approach life. So I think, it's, it's similar in that respect. There are a ton of Canadians here in the Bay Area. Um, I was going to say, I think it's the largest expat, uh, Canadian expat community anywhere in the world. Yeah, yeah, there, there, are, there are substantial amounts of Canadians and, and people in interesting roles and interesting companies doing, doing interesting stuff. So I don't feel like that much of an anomaly. You know, I'm not that uh, unique running around being, being Canadian. Um, when you go to the Sharks Canucks games, there's an awful lot of Canucks jerseys, um, including myself, you know, um, representing here. Um, so I think it hasn't been, I, I don't feel like I stand out. I think these days, a lot of my friends and neighbors are jealous because uh, they they talk wantingly about uh, escaping America and moving to Canada. And I always make the point that I actually can do that and, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, at any point if we wanted to do that. But um you know, I think um, I see Aiden Sullivan on on the line, and and Aiden knows um, I've been able to get connected and networked with with other Canadians here, and and uh, there's a really interesting group that started some years back called C100, and it's sort of a networking organization for Canadians um, in Silicon Valley and working in technology. And there were a group of guys, you know, um, 
predominantly venture capitalists and you know people working in sort of in finance and investment <clears throat> that were sort of realizing that that other countries that other you know regional groups had you, you know more network that they would uh, really leverage to get connected and support each other and share information um, and and that there was this opportunity as Canadians where you know they're especially given there's so much interesting uh, development companies like yours Martin that are starting uh, and offering really interesting um, investment opportunities and, and new technologies and new innovations and this idea like could we help ourselves as a community get connected to other Canadians but also could we have a mission of helping Canadian business and connect the valley back to Canada so um, that's been a really interesting journey to be part of that and, and have moments of opportunity where you're really around other Canadians but uh, helping each other out, getting networked, but also always thinking about um, how do we help businesses um, back in Canada get on the radar for for investment, for learning, for resources, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's. I think we're at a point in time where it's possible to take advantage of opportunities um, globally, and and certainly um, from a Canadian standpoint, take advantage of opportunities in the U.S. in a way that wasn't possible uh, a generation ago. Um, and C100, I think, is, is one of the big parts of supporting that uh, for Canadians and, uh, and for, uh, yeah, for Canadians uh, especially. Um, shifting gears a little bit, uh, we're all on, on Zoom right now. Uh, we're all on Zoom right now, not just for, uh, for this uh, webinar, but we're on, many of us are on Zoom uh, uh, all the time, all uh, every day. What's uh, what's the last two months been like for you and for your company as you've had to adapt to uh, to COVID nineteen and the changes that that's brought? It's been uh, it's been a strange and wonderful time for the last few months. Um, you know, being here in California, we we were one of the states that moved probably fastest and. Most, most aggressively in terms of policy and, and, and what we call shelter in place. Um, we've been more restrictive uh, than I know it has been in BC. You know, I think BC has, has fared very well through the process and has very, had very good leadership, but I think has not had the same kind of strictness to, to rules and regulation that we implemented here. So I can recall very, very clearly, you know, three months ago, being in New York for a series of meetings and, and uh, when it was all kind of really closing down and sitting with some of my colleagues at, in, in our New York office and our, in our HQ and sort of saying, I don't, I don't know when we're going to sort of see each other again, but, uh, you know, off we go and flew back. That was my last flight and um, worked very hard, very rapidly to, to pivot our business to be 100% virtual. <clears throat> I'm very fortunate that, you know, we, we are in an, an information driven business that was, was actually easier uh, to, to pivot to become virtual. Um, we don't have a lot of need for people to be on location. I think some of the challenge of not having people together and as connected for, for strategizing and creativity and things, I think we miss a little bit of that. But for the most part, we, we shifted very rapidly. I mean, we, we had already we were a business that used virtual tools and, and uh, conference calls and Zooms and, and, and people could work from home. Everybody had a laptop and Wi-Fi and, you know, all that kind of basics. And so it wasn't that hard to keep the business going and, and shift. 
I think our clients, obviously, uh, as this all unfolded, we work across a really wide range of clients and industries, and, and everybody's business has been impacted differently. We've got clients like um, food service, like Kraft, where you know people stocked up right away, and everybody's been cooking at home more. You know, so sales are are up. <clears throat> We've got a client that's an e-commerce retailer in the beauty and skincare space. It's like going absolutely crazy and are benefiting from this moment. But other clients like Toyota or Bridgestone where auto sales, you know, ground to a halt. Nobody wants to go to a car dealership. Um, and, and the NBA is a client of ours. We do media planning and buying for the NBA out of our New York office. And, you know, they just called up one day and said, we're going to shut the season down. So we're going to turn it all off. So I think our clients have been all over the place. So how we've had to help them adapt and respond, how we've helped them try to understand what is happening in the consumer landscape. Um, but our, but our business has had to adapt rapid. It's been, it's probably, if I'm honest, been more challenged for us to try to help adapt to our clients realities than it has been, you know, to just kind of adapting our business. But, you know, for me personally, it's, it's, um, it's been very challenging. I've, I've had to, you know, flex new leadership muscles in terms of, how do I keep the team connected and, and how do we stay connected to our customers and clients? How do I make sure that um, all of our people feel connected and supported at home? So I'm sure like many of you guys, we're, we're doing a lot more town halls and, 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 and team standups and, and trying to stay connected that way. So that's been a really interesting leadership challenge for me. Um, you know, obviously not something that we've gone through before. Um, and I've also like, for, for me, I was always taught in, in this job to be very connected to people and to be out there sort of walking the floor. And for me, that's meant traveling around to our, our offices and staying connected to our teams, but also being out with our clients and pitching new prospects. So I'm on a plane historically all the time. And, uh, you know, to be honest with you, I was really kind of burning out of that and, and, uh, been doing that for, for a long period of time, just kind of, you know, putting one foot in the front of the other and doing it. Um, but to wake up one day and say, look, I'm, I'm going to be at, at home working from, you know, this home office and have dinner with my family and see how their, you know, days were at school and walk my dog and try to get a little fitness in. And, and um, it's, it's been a really interesting and positive um, beneficial experience for me um, that, you know, to kind of be forced to take this moment of, of, of not traveling and take that kind of a break. Yeah, I think that I think that's been the case for for a lot of folks. That uh, obviously, d despite the um, the huge uh, negative impacts of COVID nineteen, there's some silver linings, and one of those is uh, the opportunity to spend more time at home with family in a way that uh, was pretty challenging before. Um, tell me a little bit more about what you're seeing from your clients, and and how you and your clients are thinking together about um what the future looks like here um post covid yeah yeah i mean it's fascinating because clearly we have been on a steady march toward greater interaction in the digital world right for many years now and um e-commerce is not a new concept uh, you know social media is not a new concept and, and businesses you know we've we've our business has been helping businesses adapt and transform to that reality um, many many clients you know thinking about what that were thinking about what that was going to look like and how that continued march was going to progress over time and 
how how important e-commerce was today and how important it was going to be in one, three, five years and this kind of plan of of adaptation and transformation over time. And and I think what we've seen in in three months is sort of almost like a four or five year acceleration of that curve. And businesses who were who were already very digitally centric and who were very prepared for that, you know, have been able to thrive in this moment. For other businesses who who are have been further behind in that sort of transformation um, time frame or plan, I think it's really hurt them, right? And and if you haven't been set up to be able to engage customers digitally, or or you know drive sales and transact digitally, um, it's been tough, I think. And and so a lot of clients are, are, are and marketers and businesses are, are scrambling to sort of say, how do we? How do we ramp up that investment? How do we pull that time frame forward? How do we adapt to those new realities? I mean, our data says total digital time spent is up 37, 38% for most people right now. So we're spending that much more time in the digital, in the digital world, right? So if you're a marketer, how are you thinking about your investments to try to reach consumers in those channels that they're spending so much time in? But also, like, how do you tell the story of your brand and product? How do you make an emotional connection? How do you build trust and engagement with your brand and your product when you're having a much more exclusively or digitally centric kind of um, kind of engagement? And I, I think one of the things that's been fascinating, Martin, is like in the last few years, there's been this rise of of direct to consumer brands of these more nimble business models where. You know, in the past, if you wanted to start a new clothing line, like it was nearly impossible because you'd have to get retail distribution partners and you'd have to scale, you know, your production and you'd have to be able to afford television advertising and all these things. And you fast forward to today where, you know, the mattress guys and the clothing guys and, and all, all, you know, beauty products, a wide range of, of companies have started up with, with much lower kind of total cost to be able to do that. And you know they've said, look, we're going to invest in data, and we're going to really begin by understanding the customer and and finding who this customer is and be able to connect with them. And created this like very digitally centric, much more nimble playbook. Um, and I think a lot of those businesses right now are are, are thriving. And and we're sort of learning how do you take the, some of those learnings and how do you take those lessons in that new playbook and and help apply it to maybe some bigger and more known brands as well. Just picking up on your point about changing consumer behavior, are you seeing in the data um, beyond obviously the fact that consumers are spending, uh, I think you mentioned uh, 37, 38% more time online. Are you seeing other shifts in behavior from that extra time being spent online from the impact of COVID-19? Yeah, very, very much so. I mean, I think some of this stuff is, is, um, to be expected a little bit. I think um, a, a lot of shopping behavior, you know, if you can't go to retail right now uh, and get products that you need, you know, people are shopping and it's, and it's funny because I sort of think of it as a spectrum. Like there's people like my dad probably who, who has have miraculously discovered Amazon in the, in the last couple of months. Oh my God, you can order all this stuff online. Others of us who are, you know, probably further along um, but still like other barriers of perception, like things that I maybe wasn't as confident doing online or wasn't as used to doing online. You know, I was talking to some of my colleagues the other day about, you know, grocery shopping and, and especially fresh, fresh products. Like 
oh, I'll, you know, I'll order my, all my cleaning supplies on Amazon, but I can't order my tomatoes online because, you know, they might not be ripe or whatever. But then lo and behold, you have to order grocery online and it comes and the product, you know, produce is great and seamless process. And you're like, oh, actually I can do this, you know, or, um, um, you know, telemedicine, I think is a really interesting one that has really interesting implications. You know, what is it like to have a doctor's visit on Zoom and, and outside of, you know, actually being able to like poke and prod you as if needed, um, you know, can we, can we do certain things? Are, are consumers confident, are pe people confident about certain types of behaviors online that, that they maybe haven't before? Um, you know, clothes, oh, I got to try that on before I buy it, whatever. But, you know, people are breaking through those kinds of barriers. So I think what we think- forced force yeah, more experimentation in a way that wouldn't have happened without this uh, this experience yeah and then having broken through that barrier and established confidence i think those behaviors you know have lasting implications um just being mindful of time here i know we want to keep enough time to open it up to to broader questions and uh, maybe one last topic uh, before we do that um when you look at uh, at social media and how that's evolved um, how, how do you look at the challenges and, and from your perspective in, in helping your clients and also as, a, as an individual person, how do you look at the challenges that uh, social media companies and sites like Facebook and Twitter and TikTok have um, when it comes to obviously enabling um, everyone to be able to, to speak oh, and boy. to share what they want to share? Um, and at the same time, the challenges that come along with that, that some of what they may be sharing may be outright offensive uh, to some people. It may be misinformation. Um, you know, how do, how do you look at that? What do you, what are you seeing? It's an excellent question. I mean, I think we will look back in the future and a lot of sociologists will, will do a lot of analysis of the the good and the bad impacts of, of the rise of social media in this era that we're living through. Um, you know, the opportunity to connect people up, um, enable people to stay connected to, to each other um, in a way that, you know, has, has been hard historically, I think is, has got lots of positives. Um, I, I think that, you know, for me, I think about a number of implications, right? I, I really worry about, the divisiveness and the polarization that's happening, particularly in the US, but globally, certainly. Um, and I think the challenge is that social media, as you said, Martin, gives everyone a voice and there's no ability to, to, to impart or understand the authority of that a voice or the expertise of that voice. All voices are voices for good and for bad. Um, and I think, you know, we, we have proven to really have a tendency to connect with people who think uh, like we do and look like we do. And so there's this really this self-reinforcing behavior. And I think it's been really harmful for the politics of the country. Um, and, and I worry about it going forward because how you feel is, is reinforced and validated by the other people around you that apparently feel the same. And, it, and it's become harder and harder to get disparate opinions or have be challenged or have dialogue and, and debate. Um, and, and those things in the past, having different points of view and discussing and debating them and trying to find 
you know, middle ground or solutions has, has been a, a key part of, of political life and how, how, li you know, how life works. And now it's like, you know, we don't need to do that. We, we need to retreat to our corners and, and, so new and tribalism. our own behaviors. Yeah. I think, you know, for me, that part of it aside, the amount of time that people are spending on social media in various forms is staggering. And, you know, the, the amount of dollars that, that marketers are flowing through the Facebooks of the world is also staggering because um, Facebook has the world's largest human database. You know, they know everything about everyone on some level, uh, really, if you, if you boil it down. And, and if you're a marketer and you want to reach a certain type of customer, not males 35 to 54 with 100,000 income, but you want to reach a certain type of consumer, they give us unprecedented power. And, you know, I'll, I'll use a quick example. Um, as I, I said, you know, when COVID shelter in place all started to happen, I realized that I had a huge opportunity. And I, I you know, with all my travels, I wasn't super fit and, and kind of hanging on to a little weekend warrior activity. And I was like, you know, look, I can really use this. So I got a little gym going in my backyard. I got my road bike out and I've been really trying every day to kind of do some fitness and get in shape. And so, you know, I go on YouTube and, Hey, what are some tips? Or I look up a video and, you know, uh, I start sharing with my buddies about my, my, my rides and stuff. And so I send all those signals out into the digital world that I've become interested and passionate about fitness at this moment. And so if you were to look at my social feeds right now across Instagram and Facebook and others, a hundred percent of my sponsored listings overnight went from wine and whatever other bullshit I was looking at before. And it's all fitness apparel, fitness tips, fitness companies. And if you think about that, like that's amazing because that's actually exactly what I care about at this moment. And I've given those signals that, you know, like if you're, if you're some upstart, you know, fitness apparel brand or your Nike for that matter, you don't want to like talk to every guy 25 to 50. You want to know that Mike is working out and into it right now. And Mike's so looking for think, this. Mike wants to, ideally, Mike wants to hear about this. Yeah. yeah. And so I think that ability to really on a one-to-one -one level understand, you know, where people are at and, and what they're interested in and what's relevant to them ha has given us tremendous power. And so I think like the, the negatives sociology, sociologically, politically of social media, um, you know, I think we're going to have to work out, but the opportunity for marketers to, to take these signals where people are really expressing what's relevant to them, what they're passionate about, what their interests are, what their purchases are. Um, you know, that, that gives us this amazing tool set as marketers. Outstanding. Um, this has been a fantastic discussion. I know we could keep going here. Um, I think, uh, I think I'm going to turn to Steve here and see uh, what questions are, are out there from, uh, I've got from the audience. Yeah, Excellent. There's, a, uh, there's, there's a few that have come in as you guys have been chatting. So I'll, uh, I've tried to group them a little bit, but um, thanks for doing this guys. It's been great. What um, Mike, one of the questions came in, what's the best example of an ad campaign that's really nailed it during COVID? If you have one. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a good question. Um, I have not, to be honest, I have not been a great fan of all of these sort of anthemic, um, you know, we're thinking of you in this challenging time 
uh, sort of TV spots that I think a lot of brands tried to pivot to. Um, I, I have equally um, questioned some of the some brand activity and their words, you know, in the last week or two, given the sort of uh, social justice crisis that we're also facing. I, I tend to look at brands that are doing things and, and um, you know, like an auto manufacturer coming out and saying like, you know, you, if, if you lose your job during COVID, you can return this car and, and, you know, creating something where you're actually really reflecting a clear understanding of what's happening and, and what it means to people and trying to be there, trying to do something as a result of that. Um, I, I have, I have felt a little bit, I'm trying to think of like other great examples that, cause I've, I've talked about a bunch of them lately and they're, I'm just blanking, but I think just like, I, I think that we're, I guess what I would say coming back to a little bit, what we were just talking about is I believe that from a marketing and brand building perspective, we're sort of moving past an era of words and emotions and to, and to an era of, of meaning and action and utility, because we can deliver that much more through digital tools. And I think some brands are still kind of trying to pull a page out of that old playbook of like, I want to make you feel good about my brand right now by saying nice words about the moment. And, and I just think that, um, I think a lot of consumers just look past that these days. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, similar question to that one was, you know, you see with the black lives matter stuff going on, seems every brand has started throwing up some sort of post or something to do with black lives matter. Like what do you tell your customers? What's the right move for them to do in that kind of a thing? Or is it best to do nothing or what, like what, what kind of advice do you give brands for, for that? Uh, it's a good question. It's an incredibly challenging moment for a lot of brands because um, I think what we see is today's consumer, younger consumers, especially millennials, Gen Z, they care much more about what a brand stands for than consumers in the past, right? And they expect their employer to have a clear point of view. They expect brands to express their point of view and they're gonna decide this, this, is, this is aligned with my values or it's not, right? And I think that's why you see a brand like Nike say we're we're going to align with Colin Kaepernick we're going to we're going to you know clearly express our our values knowing that that's not for everyone but it's for most of their customers and they know that if they don't do that that the that the, the risk to their brand um of consumers challenging them and asking them what they stand for um would be greater and i think that the the data suggests that that's been very successful for Nike but um, it's it's really challenging because you you know Jordan's you know famous quote I don't want to you know deal in politics because Republicans buy sneakers too right like you by definition you sort of it ha you have the potential to alienate part of your customer audience why would a brand want us to take a stand knowing that like twenty nine percent of its customer base might walk out based on you know what you said so it's it's really difficult. But I think, I think brands feel at this moment that they, that they have to be clear, that they have a responsibility. People look to businesses and brands um, to play a different role, I think, than they did you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, and so I think you have to be very thoughtful about it. You know, our, our advice to, to brands is to be 
is to be careful and thoughtful about how you go about doing that. And again, I think um, you, you see brands in the last couple of weeks getting called out for sort of just making statements, but not doing anything. Um, and, and I think it comes back to that point for me of like, if you are going to take a stand, um, uh, you know, REI is a client of ours here in the U.S. And, um, you know, they closed their stores for, for Black Friday. And they said, we want people to get outside. We don't want people to be shopping. So on the biggest shopping day of the year, we're going to close our retailer. We're going to close our stores and say, go outside. It's like, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's, you know, that's, that's making a statement. Totally. Um, a question popped in from uh, uh, Bragnolo on the call. It's relevant to this. He's, he says, what marketing advice would you give the VPD or any police department during this time? I don't know, man. That's, uh, it's, uh, these are tough questions. Um, I think that... Um, I think like a lot of things in life, I guess it starts by listening. And uh, <clears throat> I think what, what a lot of people would like to see or hope for from their police forces is this, is being alive to the issues and listening to what people have to say. I, I look across, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm less current on Vancouver, you know, current events. I would guess that it's less of a, you know, police brutality and racism them inherent in the police force and in their actions, I would, I would guess that that's less prevalent in Vancouver than certainly other places that we've seen in the U.S. But, you know, I, I think this idea that um, an acknowledgement of the issue, a listening uh, to people, and, and I think the more you can demonstrate that action and say, look, you know, we get it, we're listening, we're here, we, 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 we're looking for ways to improve and change. Um, I think the police department's here and the places where they're running into more trouble is this sense of obstructionism, is a sense of like, no, 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 like the way it is is fine. Um, a sense of a lack of empathy or listening to people um, right now. And um, so I don't know, I don't know that I have a great marketing campaign idea for the Vancouver Police Department, but I guess if I was advising them, I would say, you know, really actually listen and, and then show your constituents and stakeholders that you're listening and, and, and you're truly taking on board and you're, you're alive to the issues. I think that's mostly what people want that people are looking for right now. It's a, it's a tough that's one. Good. That's a good one. Um, well, here's an easier one for you. Um, where does online marketing go from here? <laughs> What's around the corner in online marketing? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, here, I'll give you one, I'll give you one thought. Um, we've been we've been kept away from physical interactions with brands and businesses a lot over the last few months and i think you know post covid there are probably changes in behavior that we're going to see from consumers like the idea of you know a woman rolling into uh, the nordstrom beauty counter and picking up a lipstick that 10 other women have tried on before her and just like you know putting that on or you know that, that is unlikely to be happening anytime, you know, kind of going forward in some of those, those behaviors. Um, I, I think if the more brands are, are continue to be limited in their physical interaction with people, I think some of the stuff that's been percolating for a while around augmented reality, virtual reality, 
you know, like my friend was telling me he got one of those fitness mirror things that you see on late night infomercials, but like the, these interactive technologies, which begin to um, fill some of the gaps in, in what would have been physical or brand experience in the past, I think are likely to have a bit of a moment here. And, and some of that stuff that's been around for a while and has been a little bit slow, I think slower than we thought and getting traction, um, stuff like augmented reality. I, I see that accelerating um, as brands think about the importance of, of consumer experience and consumer interaction. But if we're spending so much more time in the digital world, and we're also more limited in, in the physical world, or maybe you're a direct-to-consumer band and you don't even have physical locations and retail. Like, how can you create digital experience through content and tools and technology that, that helps supplement or fill in for what we would have looked for more physical experience to do in the past? That would, that would be my thought. Awesome. This, uh, I know we're running out of time here. Uh, this one's uh, just a bunch of question marks, but it says like TikTok question mark, good or bad <laughs> question mark here to stay. Does Facebook <laughs> buy them? Like, so what's your, what's your thoughts on, on TikTok? I just need to call my daughter Madeline in here and uh, she'll tell you all about TikTok. She'll show you her 10 latest dances. And uh, I mean, it's another one of these like phenomenon, you know, like you look at it initially and, um, and then it goes bananas and you're sort of shaking your head. But um you know, I think it's here to stay. I think they've tapped into uh, an interesting, um, different uh, kind of vein with with the music and and dancing and 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 some of the way that that people are interacting with it. You know, like Snap hasn't gone away. Like Snap, I, Snapchat, I think had more of a moment with with the younger generation. I feel this sense of that energy moving a little bit toward TikTok. Um, you know, so I think things continue to ebb and flow, but. I don't think it's going anywhere. Um, they have yet to really figure out how to monetize and, and get let brands get involved. Um, you know, they've been really focused on scaling their their audience and user base. So I think the next the next thing for TikTok is you know how to how do brands really play in TikTok. Um, Instagram is an example. Um, you know, went in the same sort of vein. You know, pre and post Facebook acquisition, but um, you know everyone's posting photos, sharing. And then, and then I think they began, began to open up advertising opportunity and brands have said like, this is a great place for discovery. This is a great place to use imagery and showcase, you know, fashion, beauty, different types of brands and products that benefit from that kind of like image-based interaction. And, and it's become a really powerful tool for, for some marketers and types of brands. And I think, I think that'll be the question for TikTok. I think that user growth and usage is going to continue to go bananas, but then it'll be like, what's the business model? Like, like all of these guys have had to define. Cool. Um, I've got one more for you and then we can wrap it up. Um, for small direct to consumer brand, what's the best way do you think to reach consumers? Um, well, that's a pretty broad question. Um, I think the thing I like about um, a lot of direct-to-consumer business opportunities and that sort of playbook, as I talked about before, is 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 really hyper-targeting. Is really being super clear about who your your product is for, and and putting the data infrastructure in place um, to identify those customers and find them and get in front of them um, in the right channels. Um, 
to me, like, even if you're, you know, Martin's type of business where you're, where you're more B2B probably than B2C, I still think like, um, being really, you know, having the benefit of the data enabling you to, you know, find Mike at that moment when I'm into fitness or to find that business leader, uh, at that moment when they're dealing with issues like contracts, uh, you know, I think the model is, is the, the common thread I think for all of the, the DTC type businesses is like, is the data and, and really laser targeting as a result. Cool. Um, for both of you, uh, Martin and Mike, thanks for doing this. If, if, uh, people wanted to get in touch with you, what would be the best way to do that? Maybe Mike for you first. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to, you know, hear from, from grads or students, if I can help in any way, best way to get me is Mike Parker, seven, seven at gmail.com. Cool. How about, uh, Martin, is there a good way or website or Twitter or email? What's preferred? Uh, email. It's probably the best way, though. You can find me lots of other ways as well. Uh, my email is Martin Ertl, M-A-R-T-I-N-E-R-T-L at gmail.com. And uh, like Mike, um, love to chat with uh, VC grads and students and happy to help in any way I can. Awesome. Well, thank you guys both for doing this. Um, I really appreciate it. If anybody on the call has ideas for um, who else we should have and, uh, on this, that would be uh, just let me know. That would be great. Um, we do have one scheduled for next week. We've got Dax De Silva, uh, grad of 94, I believe. Um, he's the CEO and founder of Lightspeed, which is a publicly traded tech company on the TSX. He's based out of Montreal. So Dax will be on um, next Wednesday. So hopefully um, you guys all come back again. But Mike and Martin, thank you both very much. I really appreciate it. Um, and thanks to everybody else for attending. Have a good night. My pleasure, Stephen. Thank you for organizing and, and thank you for looking for ways to keep the alumni uh, community connected. Good on you. No problem. A big thanks to both of you. This has been fantastic. Good night, all. Good night.